Section 45 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 2, Part 1. Engulfed. Christophe had got so far with his clumsy efforts towards the reform of German art when there happened to pass through the town a troop of French actors. It would be more exact to say a band, for, as usual, they were a collection of poor devils, picked up goodness knows where, and young unknown players too happy to learn their art, provided they were allowed to act. They were all harnessed to the chariot of a famous and elderly actress who was making tour of Germany, and passing through the little princely town gave their performances there. Waldhaus's review made a great fuss over them. Mannheim and his friends knew or pretended to know about the literary and social life of Paris. They used to repeat gossip picked up in the boulevard newspapers and more or less understood. They represented the French spirit in Germany. That robbed Christophe of any desire to know more about it. Mannheim used to overwhelm him with praises of Paris. He had been there several times. Certain members of his family were there. He had relations in every country in Europe, and they had everywhere assumed the nationality and aspect of the country. This tribe of the seed of Abraham included an English baronet, a Belgian senator, a French minister, a deputy in the Reichstag, and a papal count, and all of them, although they were united and filled with respect for the stock from which they sprang, were sincerely English, Belgian, French, German, or Papal, for their pride never allowed of doubt that the country of their adoption was the greatest of all. Mannheim was paradoxically the only one of them who was pleased to prefer all the countries to which he did not belong. He used often to talk of Paris enthusiastically, but as he was always extravagant in his talk, and, by way of praising the Parisians, used to represent them as a species of scatterbrains, lewd and rowdy, who spent their time in love-making and revolutions, without ever taking themselves seriously, Christophe was not greatly attracted by the Byzantine and decadent republic beyond the Vosges. He used rather to imagine Paris as it was presented in a naive engraving which he had seen as a frontispiece to a book that had recently appeared in a German art publication. The devil of Notre Dame appeared huddled up above the roofs of the town with the legend, Eternal luxury like an insatiable vampire devours its prey above the great city. Like a good German, he despised the debauched Volke and their literature, of which he only knew lively buffooneries like Leglon, Madame Saint-Gene, and a few café songs. The snobbishness of the little town, where those people who were most notoriously incapable of being interested in art flocked noisily to take places at the box-office, brought him to an affectation of scornful indifference towards the great actress. He vowed that he would not go one yard to hear her. It was the easier for him to keep his promise as seats had reached an exorbitant price which he could not afford. The repertory which the French actors had brought included a few classical pieces, but for the most part it was composed of those idiotic pieces which are expressly manufactured in Paris for exportation, for nothing is more international than mediocrity. 
Christophe knew La Tosca, which was to be the first production of the touring actors. He had seen it in translation, adorned with all those easy graces which the company of a little Rhenish theatre can give to a French play, and he laughed scornfully and declared that he was very glad when he saw his friends go off to the theatre not to have to see it again. But next day he listened none the less eagerly, without seeming to listen, to the enthusiastic tales of the delightful evening they had had. He was angry at having lost the right to contradict them by having refused to see what everybody was talking about. The second production announced was a French translation of Hamlet. Christophe had never missed an opportunity of seeing a play of Shakespeare's. Shakespeare was to him of the same order as Beethoven, an inexhaustible spring of life. Hamlet had been specially dear to him during the period of stress and tumultuous doubts through which he had just passed. In spite of his fear of seeing himself reflected in that magic mirror, he was fascinated by it, and he prowled about the theatre notices, though he did not admit that he was longing to book a seat. But he was so obstinate that after what he had said to his friends he would not eat his words, and he would have stayed at home that evening if chance had not brought him in contact with Mannheim just as he was sadly going home. Mannheim took his arm and told him angrily, though he never ceased his banter, that an old beast of a relation, his father's sister, had just come down upon them with all her retinue, and that they had all to stay at home to welcome her. He had time to get out of it, but his father would brook no trifling with questions of family etiquette and the respect due to elderly relatives, and as he had to handle his father carefully, because he wanted presently to get money out of him, he had had to give in and not go to the play. "'You had tickets?' asked Christophe. "'An excellent box, and I have to go and give it—I am just going now—to that old pig, Grunbaum, Papa's partner, so that he can swagger there with the she-Grunbaum and their turkey-hen of a daughter. Jolly! I want to find something very disagreeable to say to them. They won't mind, so long as I give them the tickets.' although they would much rather they were banknotes. He stopped short with his mouth open and looked at Christophe. "'Oh, but—but but just the man I want,' he chuckled. "'Christophe, are you going to the theatre? "'No.' "'Good. You shall go. I ask it as a favour. You cannot refuse.' Christophe did not understand. "'But I have no seat.' "'Here you are.' said Mannheim triumphantly, thrusting the ticket into his hand. "'You are mad,' said Christophe. "'What about your father's orders?' Mannheim laughed. "'He will be furious,' he said. He dried his eyes and went on. "'I shall tap him to-morrow morning, as soon as he is up, before he knows anything.' "'I cannot accept,' said Christophe, knowing that he would not like it. "'It does not concern you. You know nothing about it.' Christophe had unfolded the ticket. "'And what would I do with a box for four? "'Whatever you like. "'You can sleep in it, dance if you like, "'take some women. "'You must know some. "'If need be, we can lend you some.' Christophe held out the ticket to Mannheim. "'Certainly not. "'Take it back.' "'Not I,' said Mannheim, stepping back a pace. "'I can't force you to go if it bores you, "'but I shan't take it back.' You can throw it in the fire, or even take it virtuously to the Grunbaums. I don't care. Good night. He left Christophe in the middle of the street, ticket in hand. 
and went away. Christophe was unhappy about it. He said to himself that he ought to take it to the Grunbaums, but he was not keen about the idea. He went home still pondering, and when later he looked at the clock he saw that he had only just time enough to dress for the theatre. It would be too silly to waste the ticket. He asked his mother to go with him, but Louisa declared that she would rather go to bed. He went. At heart he was filled with childish glee at the thought of his evening. Only one thing worried him, the thought of having to be alone in such a pleasure. He had no remorse about Mannheim's father or the Grunbaums, whose box he was taking, but he was remorseful about those whom he might have taken with him. He thought of the joy it could give to other young people like himself, and it hurt him not to be able to give it them. He cast about, but could find nobody to whom he could offer his ticket. Besides, it was late, and he must hurry. As he entered the theatre, he passed by the closed window on which a poster announced that there was not a single seat left in the office. Among the people who were turning away from it disappointedly, he noticed a girl who could not make up her mind to leave, and was enviously watching the people going in. She was dressed very simply in black. She was not very tall. Her face was thin, and she looked delicate, and at the moment he did not notice whether she were pretty or plain. He passed her. Then he stopped, turned, and without stopping to think, "'You can't get a seat, Fräulein?' he asked point-blank. She blushed and said with a foreign accent, "'No, sir. I have a box which I don't know what to do with. Will you make use of it with me?' She blushed again and thanked him and said she could not accept. Christophe was embarrassed by her refusal, begged her pardon, and tried to insist. But he could not persuade her, although it was obvious that she was dying to accept. He was very perplexed. He made up his mind suddenly. "'There is a way out of the difficulty,' he said. "'You take the ticket. I don't want it. I have seen the play.' He was boasting. "'It will give you more pleasure than me. Take it, please.' The girl was so touched by his proposal and the cordial manner in which it was made that tears all but came to her eyes. She murmured gratefully that she could not think of depriving him of it. "'Then come,' he said, smiling. He looked so kind and honest that she was ashamed of having refused, and she said in some confusion, "'Thank you. I will come.' They went in. The Mannheim's box was wide, big, and faced the stage. It was impossible not to be seen in it if they had wished. It is useless to say that their entry passed unnoticed. Christophe made the girl sit at the front, while he stayed a little behind, so as not to embarrass her. She sat stiffly upright, not daring to turn her head. She was horribly shy. She would have given much not to have accepted. To give her time to recover her composure, and not knowing what to talk to her about, Christophe pretended to look the other way. Whichever way he looked, it was easily seen that his presence with an unknown companion among the brilliant people of the boxes was exciting much curiosity and comment. He darted furious glances at those who were looking at him. He was angry that people should go on being interested in him when he took no interest in them. It did not occur to him that their indiscreet curiosity was more busied with his companion than with himself, and that there was more offense in it. By way of showing his utter indifference to anything they might say or think, he leaned towards the girl and began to talk to her. 
She looked so scared by his talking, and so unhappy at having to reply, and it seemed to be so difficult for her to wrench out a yes or a no without ever daring to look at him, that he took pity on her shyness and drew back to a corner. Fortunately, the play began. Christophe had not seen the playbill, and he hardly cared to know what part the great actress was playing. He was one of those simple people who go to the theatre to see the play, and not the actors. He had never wondered whether the famous player would be Ophelia or the Queen. If he had wondered about it, he would have inclined towards the Queen, bearing in mind the ages of the two ladies. But it could never have occurred to him that she would play Hamlet. When he saw Hamlet and heard his mechanical dolly squeak, it was some time before he could believe it. He wondered if he were not dreaming. "'But who? Who is it?' he asked half aloud. "'It can't be!' And when he had to accept that it was Hamlet, he rapped out an oath, which fortunately his companion did not hear, because she was a foreigner, though it was heard perfectly in the next box, for he was at once indignantly bidden to be silent. He withdrew to the back of the box to swear his fill. He could not recover his temper. If he had been just, he would have given homage to the elegance of the travesty and the tour de force of nature and art, which made it possible for a woman of sixty to appear in a youth's costume and even to seem beautiful in it, at least to kindly eyes. But he hated all tours de force, everything which violates and falsifies nature. He liked a woman to be a woman and a man a man. It does not often happen nowadays." The childish and absurd travesty of the Leonora of Beethoven did not please him much, but this travesty of Hamlet was beyond all dreams of the preposterous. To make of the robust Dane, fat and pale, choleric, cunning, intellectual, subject to hallucinations, a woman, not even a woman, for a woman playing the man can only be a monster, to make of Hamlet a eunuch, or an androgynous betwixt and between, the times must be flabby indeed. Criticism must be idiotic, to let such disgusting folly be tolerated for a single day and not hissed off the boards. The actress's voice infuriated Christophe. She had that singing laboured diction, that monotonous melopoeia which seems to have been dear to the least poetic people in the world since the days of the Chamilly and the Hôtel de Bourgogne. Christophe was so exasperated by it that he wanted to go away. He turned his back on the scene, and he made hideous faces against the wall of the box like a child put in the corner. Fortunately, his companion dared not look at him, for if she had seen him, she would have thought him mad. Suddenly Christophe stopped making faces. He stopped still and made no sound. A lovely musical voice, a young woman's voice, grave and sweet, was heard. Christophe pricked his ears. As she went on with her words, he turned again, keenly interested to see what bird could warble so. He saw Ophelia. In truth, she was nothing like the Ophelia of Shakespeare. She was a beautiful girl, tall, big, and fine like a young, fresh statue. Electra, or Cassandra, she was brimming with life. In spite of her efforts to keep within her part the force of youth and joy that was in her shone forth from her body, her movements, her gestures, her brown eyes that laughed in spite of herself. 
such is the power of physical beauty that christophe who a moment before had been merciless in judging the interpretation of hamlet never for a moment thought of regretting that ophelia was hardly at all like his image of her and he sacrificed his image to the present vision of her remorselessly with the unconscious faithlessness of people of passion he even found a profound truth in the youthful ardor brimming in the depths of the chaste and unhappy virgin heart but the magic of the voice pure warm and velvety worked the spell every word sounded like a lovely chord about every syllable there hovered like the scent of thyme or wild mint the laughing accent of the midi with its full rhythm strange was this vision of an ophelia from arles in it was something of that golden sun and its wild northwest wind its mistral christophe forgot his companion and came and sat by her side at the front of the box he never took his eyes off the beautiful actress whose name he did not know but the audience who had not come to see an unknown player paid no attention to her and only applauded when the female hamlet spoke that made christophe growl and call them idiots in a low voice which could be heard ten yards away it was not until the curtain was lowered upon the first act that he remembered the existence of his companion and seeing that she was still shy he thought with a smile of how he must have scared her with his extravagances he was not far wrong the girl whom chance had thrown in his company for a few hours was almost morbidly shy she must have been in an abnormal state of excitement to have accepted christophe's invitation she had hardly accepted it than she had wished at any cost to get out of it to make some excuse and to escape it had been much worse for her when she had seen that she was an object of general curiosity and her unhappiness had been increased almost past endurance when she heard behind her back she dared not turn around her companion's low growls and imprecations she expected anything now and when he came and sat by her she was frozen with terror what eccentricity would he commit next she would gladly have sunk into the ground fathoms down she drew back instinctively she was afraid of touching him but all her fears vanished when the interval came and she heard him say quite kindly i am an unpleasant companion eh i beg your pardon then she looked at him and saw his kind smile which had induced her to come with him he went on i cannot hide what i think but you know it is too much that woman that old woman he made a face of disgust she smiled and said in a low voice it is fine in spite of everything he noticed her accent and asked you are a foreigner yes said she he looked at her modest gown a governess he said yes what nationality she said i am french he made a gesture of surprise French. I should not have thought it. Why? she asked timidly. You are so serious, said he. She thought it was not altogether a compliment from him. There are serious people also in France, said she confusedly. He looked at her honest little face with its broad forehead, little straight nose, delicate chin, and thin cheeks framed in her chestnut hair. 
It was not she that he saw. He was thinking of the beautiful actress. He repeated, It is strange that you should be French. Are you really of the same nationality as Ophelia? One would never think it. After a moment's silence, he went on. How beautiful she is! Without noticing that he seemed to be making a comparison between the actress and his companion that was not at all flattering to her. But she felt it. But she did not mind, for she was of the same opinion. He tried to find out about the actress from her. But she knew nothing. It was plain that she did not know much about the theatre. "'You must be glad to hear French?' he asked. He meant it in jest, but he touched her. "'Ah!' she said with an accent of sincerity which struck him. "'It does me so much good. I am stifled here.' He looked at her more closely. She clasped her hands and seemed to be oppressed, but at once she thought of how her words might hurt him. "'Forgive me,' she said. "'I don't know what I am saying.' He laughed. "'Don't beg pardon. You are quite right.' You don't need to be French to be stifled here. Oof! He threw back his shoulders and took a long breath. But she was ashamed of having been so free and relapsed into silence. Besides, she had just seen that the people in the boxes next to them were listening to what they were saying. He noticed it too and was wrathful. They broke off, and until the end of the interval he went out into the corridor. The girl's words were ringing in his ears, but he was lost in dreams. The image of Ophelia filled his thoughts. During the succeeding acts she took hold of him completely, and when the beautiful actress came to the mad scene and the melancholy songs of love and death, her voice gave forth notes so moving that he was bowled over. He felt that he was going to burst into tears, angry with himself for what he took to be a sign of weakness, for he would not admit that a true artist can weep, and not wishing to make an object of himself, he left the box abruptly. The corridors and the foyer were empty. In his agitation he went down the stairs of the theatre and went out without knowing it. He had to breathe the cold night air, and to go striding through the dark, half-empty streets. He came to himself by the edge of a canal, and leaned on the parapet of the bank, and watched the silent water, whereon the reflections of the street-lamps danced in the darkness. His soul was like that. It was dark and heaving. He could see nothing in it but great joy dancing on the surface. The clocks rang the hour. It was impossible for him to go back to the theatre and hear the end of the play. To see the triumph of Fortinbras? No, that did not tempt him. A fine triumph, that! Who thinks of envying the conqueror? Who would be he after being gorged with all the wild and absurd savagery of life? The whole play is a formidable indictment of life but there is such a power of life in it that sadness becomes joy and bitterness intoxicates. Christophe went home without a thought for the unknown girl, whose name even he had not ascertained. End of section 45